Welcome to the Shoreline Community Church Podcast, a community of love, acceptance, forgiveness, and belonging. For more information, be sure to check us out online at shorelinecc.com. Thank you, Pastor Dwayne. <laughs> that great introduction. Um, yeah, I consider it a great honor to be able to speak to you this morning um, to a community that, yeah, I've been a part of since I was in the womb and that I really have a deep affection and love for. So as Pastor Dwayne mentioned, um, we're in a series. So this is the third week of our series where we've been, we're going through the letters of First and Second Peter, and this will be our last week looking at First Peter. Um, these are great letters that were sent to the first generation of Christians by the Apostle Peter, and that still speaks so powerfully to us today. And so the, the series is entitled the, the Backpacker's Handbook, and I feel like I should start off with a confession that I am not much of a backpacker or a hiker, that I probably would never suggest to my friends, hey, let's go backpacking, let's go on a hike. Um, but I do get dragged along every so often on one. And I will say that I always enjoy the view once I'm there, you know, that it's always breathtaking once we get to that lake, to that lookout point. It makes it all worth it in the end, I suppose. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I think no one would go on those trips, go hiking or backpacking, if it weren't for that payoff, that destination that they have in mind. To go through all of the trouble of getting the right forest pass, of taking a long drive to a trailhead, um, of training your body to go long distances, to go uphill, to carry the extra weight, to pack the right bag, to forego all of the modern conveniences of a toilet, of a bed, <laughs> of our modern technology. And so I think that that makes uh, this metaphor very apt for the spiritual life and the spiritual journey. And it is a, a large part of what Peter is communicating through these letters, as we've heard about in previous weeks, where he's talking, of, he calls his readers sojourners and exiles, that they're foreigners, um, really on pilgrimage through this present age. And he constantly reminds them of the destination that they are preparing for. And the destination, actually, he uses language or vocabulary that might seem kind of surprising to us, not how we typically talk about it. Um, I've lifted, listed just seven references that are scattered throughout this epistle um, of what Peter lays before the, his readers as the hope that they have to look forward to. And he uses the language of revelation, of something to be revealed, of something that's going to be uncovered, um, specifically of the revelation of Jesus Christ. You can think of, you, you know the story well of Jesus, how he died for our sins, he went through crucifixion, he was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, he sits on the throne now, and we're awaiting a time for him to return and to fully establish his kingdom um, and really to renew creation, to bring about a new heavens and a new earth where things are set right, um, to bring about ultimate justice. And so that is the hope that he places before believers, those who take refuge in him, those who believe in him, have their faith in him. They're waiting for a salvation ready to be revealed, for the glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, um, 
for the day of visitation, for when the, the chief shepherd, who is Jesus, when he appears. This is the hope placed before us. And tied to this idea is also the idea of final judgment, which Peter brings up three times in the letter, where he talks about God as the one who judges impartially, who judges justly, who's ready to judge the living and the dead. And final judgment, I think, in our modern usage of it, has a very negative connotations. It's often just associated with the punishment aspect of it. But I think maybe a better way to frame it is final justice, that there is a, that people will be held accountable, that there those who are innocent and who have lived rightly and are taken advantage of, those who have been wronged, that there is a final accounting for where um, there is just punishment and just reward. And that is also part of the equation. It's part of why uh, Jesus has offered us forgiveness for our sins because of the injustice that we bring into this world. And so it's important that we realize Jesus has dealt with it and he offers salvation, he offers forgiveness as we put our faith in him and take refuge in him, that we can actually look forward to final judgment. So as I mentioned, again, part of as introductory, uh, we're preparing for this destination and as part of the journey, as foreigners to the kingdoms of this world, as sojourners and exiles, we also encounter opposition or hostility. There are times when we're going to be butting up against the cultures that we are living in. And so Peter, this is a main point for Peter as well, because the first generation of Christians encountered all kinds of insulting, of rumors, of people speaking badly about them, speaking of Christians as evil, partly because of misconceptions, of misunderstandings about what it means to follow Jesus, and sometimes because of the right understanding that are just flatly rejected by the world. And so Peter addresses three different possible responses to this kind of opposition to when uh, a Christian is insulted for their faith or mocked. And so I just wanted to outline those before we get into our passage. The first possible response is to give in to the pressure, to compromise, lower your standards, succumb to that pressure. And Peter obviously flatly rejects this as this is not the way. It, that's tantamount to abandoning the faith, to say, okay, I'm just going to follow Jesus when it's easy, when it's convenient. Um, is not a possibility in Peter's mind. The, the second possibility is that we would stand firm, we'd hold, you know, hold to our position, and then fight back. That we would get angry, and that when we're insulted, we insult back. When we feel like someone's trying to shame us, we point out the shame that they deserve. And Peter also rejects this response, and instead he holds up the example of Jesus, who committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth, that when he was reviled, when he was spoken badly against, when he was abused, he did not revile in return. But instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And so we get this picture of Jesus, our ultimate example, as the one, as the proper response to opposition, as one who graciously endures while doing good. So that leads directly into our passage for today, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. 
Um, and I've framed it around this idea of the importance of preparation. Um, there's, there's so much preparation that needs to take place in the Christian life. It doesn't just happen by accident. And so we'll talk about that. Um, first, I just want to read through the whole passage. And then you'll get a, a good sense of the whole, and then we'll go back through it more slowly. One final note, though, before I begin reading, is this is a probably a more literal translation than you're used to. Um, I've provided a more literal translation because I there's just certain things I wanted to point out, and I found that, that helped me. But I invite you to compare it to a translation that you are used to. Um, I think it'll be helpful, maybe shed some new light on the passage. So, let me begin. 1 Peter 4, 1 to 11. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same insight. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has finished with sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for the will of God, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in unrestraint, lusts, drunkenness, sensual feasts, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, in which they are surprised you are not running with them in the same flood of destructive living. They are slandering. But they will give account to him who is readily able to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged according to men in the flesh, they might live according to God in the spirit. The end of all things has drawn near. Therefore, be sensible and sober for prayers. Above all, for having earnest love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Being hospitable toward one another without grumbling. Just as each person has received a gift, serving others with it as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks as oracles of God, if anyone serves as from the strength that God supplies, so that in everything God will be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power into the ages of the ages. Amen. Amen. So I've broken up this passage into two main parts, as you can see in the outline. First is verses 1 to 6, and then verses 7 to 11, are centered around this idea of preparing. First is this idea of preparing for battle, this passage starts out with, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. That is warfare language, to arm yourself, to put something on as protection. And what is it that you're to arm yourself with is the same insight. A lot of translations uh, use the word the same mindset or way of thinking or attitude but most literally does mean insight, that, he, that Jesus had a certain mindset, a certain no, insider knowledge going into the crucifixion that enabled him to endure it the way that he did, that enabled him to encounter the worst kind of suffering mentally, physically, and spiritually, and to remain to do good, to, to not try to justify himself. Can we really say that we have that same response whenever you feel attacked? Whenever I feel attacked, 
Um, when I feel like, especially uh, where Christianity is the core of my identity, following Jesus, if that's being attacked, whether it's um, in, a, in a TV show, in a movie, in the news, in my personal life, do, how, how do I respond? Am I responding the way Jesus responded in his crucifixion, that he went to the point of death? That's, that's convicting. <laughs> Um, so here's, what is it that we're, we're arming ourselves against? It's important, I just want to note, that it's not other people that we're in battle against. Now, sometimes um, the New Testament writers talk about spiritual forces as that source of attack, and that's definitely legitimate, but I think in this context, the, the thing that we're arming ourselves against is more of the, the pressure that we encounter and the temptation to give in, the temptation to just go along with the crowd. So Peter goes on to say, because when you, you're arming yourself, because he, has, he who has suffered in the flesh has finished with sin. That's not to say that, it's kind of obvious, but it's worth pointing out. It's not to say that if you're suffering for your faith, you no longer sin, you know, you're a perfect person. It's clearly that there is now a, when you're willing to endure suffering, insult for your faith, um, you have a different relationship to sin. It doesn't have the same power over you that it once did. Um, that other translations say that um, you've finished with sin, you've ceased with sin, um, you're done with sin, so, that, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, the rest of the time in this current mode of existence, no longer for human desires, that's human lusts, human passions, but instead for the desire of God, the will of God, that we actually would take pleasure in what God takes pleasure in. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles, that is the word for the rebellious nations that are not a part of the people of God, want to do. And so now Peter is including what were Gentile Christians into the people of God and those who are now not taking refuge in the Messiah yet are the, the Gentiles. What they want to do, living in, and he lists these six activities that describe the social and religious um, riotous partying type of idea. Uh, it just points to the fact that there will be points where we as Christians can engage in the culture. There'll be points of engagement, but there will also be points of disengagement. There's going to be times where we have to say, no, that's something I won't engage in because of my identity with Jesus, because I'm following his way. And it will bring about some friction in which they are surprised you're not running with them in the same flood of destructive living. And I, oh man, I love that metaphor. It's great. I don't have a ton of time to go dive into it, but that flood of destructive living, uh, it's in reference back to just previous to this passage where Peter is talking about Noah and the ark and the flood that was brought in his day. Um, so maybe I should just let you think about that for a bit and see how, <laughs> as a little Easter egg, think about how that relates here. What, what point is Peter bringing up to call these types of activities, the flood of destructive living, that he's picturing 
these, these activities of unrestraint, lust, drunkenness, sensual feasts, as the same types of activities that brought about a flood in Noah's day, the same type of evil um, that grieved God, that he was saddened by, and that ultimately he brought um, that evil back upon itself uh, to rid it, to purify his, his good world. So, let's see. They are slandering. But they will give account to him who is readily able to judge the living and the dead. Again, that idea of keeping final judgment in mind when we encounter difficulty, opposition, insult, mockery, that we don't have to justify ourselves. We don't have to prove ourselves right all the time. I know it, just my personality, that's hard for me to do. I want to prove myself right. <laughs> I want to convince you that you are wrong, I'm right, end of story. <laughs> and I just got to look at the example of Jesus and go, what? man, he didn't do it that way. So why should I do it that way? <laughs> yeah. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged according to men in the flesh, they might live. This, yeah, it's kind of awkwardly worded. Um, it's hard to follow his train of thought here, but it's, it is a very intelligent train of thought that Peter has. He's saying that, um, really, that the gospel is preached, the good news about Jesus Christ was preached, which guarantees eternal life, right? That is um, the promise of eternal life in the kingdom. And yet Christians still die. That's kind of weird. I thought they, they are supposed to have eternal life in Jesus. And here the idea is that, yes, we're in this current mode of existence. We still die. There's still... Um, this is just a, a fallen state that we're in. And we undergo, according to men in the flesh, death. But that we may also, because of the gospel, because of that good news that was preached, can live according to God by the power of the Spirit in resurrection. And that is the Christian hope. So here, that's that first half that we've just looked at. And it looks at the Christian life more from a, uh, a kind of negative and passive way of looking at it. What I mean by that is that we encounter pressure and temptation, and we're supposed to resist. That, that is a, a, a kind of a negative, right? That it's something we are not doing, not giving in, um, not succumbing to the pressure or the temptation of sinful desires that are within us. But now Peter wants to shift gears and focus on what is it we're actually actively going to do then. If we're not doing that, what are we spending our time on? And here, here's how he starts it, by saying, the end of all things has drawn near. Which might sound strange if you just jumped straight into that, but you've heard the introduction. You know that the end of all things is the idea of Jesus' return. And the end of all things, it's interesting, because we're living now about 2,000 years, right, removed from the writing of the letter, from the time of Jesus on the earth. And um, you've probably heard some talk of the end times, and probably in a more fantastical way. Um, but in the whole, from the biblical worldview, the beginning of creation to the return of Christ is all considered this present age, right? 
And from the biblical worldview, even as far back as Genesis, the first book of the Bible, they always anticipate that the end times, the, the end of all things, is going to occur at the coming of the anointed king, the Messiah. And so in Peter's mind, hey, the Messiah came. Jesus was here. That means that has started the end. But when you look at the whole scope of human history, the end could last thousands of years, presumably, right? Because human history has been going on for thousands of years. So the end of all things has drawn near means that we've now, we've shifted gears somehow in redemptive history. Now that the Messiah has come, the end has drawn near, that we're still awaiting the final end of his return. But in the meantime, how are we supposed to respond? Are we supposed to go pick up our signs now, telling everyone, hey, the end is near? Are we supposed to pull out our timelines and draw up how is this all going to play out? Well, let's, let's see what Peter had to say. <laughs> Therefore, hmm, be sensible and sober. Okay. Sensible and sober. Other translations a lot of times say like self-controlled and sober-minded, be of good judgment. It does most literally mean, again, sensible, to be in your right mind, to be sane and sober, sober-minded. And what is the, the purpose of this? All of the things that follow, all of the activities that Peter talks about that follows um, is his answer to what it looks like to be sensible and sober. So this command to, to be sensible and sober is really the guiding command, that guiding imperative of this section. Um, it's the only one really in the imperative mood if you, for you grammarians out there. And what follows is um, participles. For again, you grammarians, any grammarians out there? Nope, English majors? Yeah, okay. I don't blame you. It's not, not the greatest <laughs> stuff to learn, but it helps in Bible study. So, <laughs> be sensible and sober. The first thing he lists is for prayers. He, he pictures the Christian life as people of prayer, that we're partnering with God to bring about his will. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That when you have the end in sight, when you you see, you know, when you have your faith in Jesus and know how, and put your faith in him as king and in his kingdom, you want to partner with him in bringing that about for prayers. And then he goes on, above all, be sensible and sober for having earnest love for one another. Presumably even before, even more important probably than prayer. Prayer is super important. But above all, having earnest love. That word earnest, a love of deep conviction, of deep commitment. Can we say that we have an earnest love for the, the body of believers, for this family, for um, the people of God, for one another? An earnest love that brings about a sense of unity, um, of, of focus, because love covers a multitude of sins. That when you're living in the end times, even if it lasts thousands of years, 
unity in Christ is the most important thing, and love is that guiding principle throughout it. It's something that Paul is constantly bringing up in his letters that constantly comes up in Jesus' teaching. It's this central ethic of the Christian life, love, because it covers a multitude of sins. It helps us to put up with one another when you come from a place of love. Um, it helps us to put up with minor offenses, and it keeps us around to work through the larger offenses. And so be sensible and sober in prayer, in committed love, and that love should flow into hospitality, being hospitable toward one another without grumbling, that we would treat one another like family, that we would open up our homes to one another, that we would find ways to be hospitable, to be people of, of service and not of people that are self-focused. And that service should flow into using your gifts. Just as each person has received a gift, serving others with it as good stewards of the varied grace of God. Serving others with the, as good stewards. And I can't help but think of a parable that Jesus told. Uh, you probably are familiar with it. The parable of the minas, or in, a, in another um, another gospel, it's the parable of the talents, these large sums of money. And the parable goes that there was a nobleman who was about to go off on a trip to be anointed king of a kingdom. And so he brought together his servants, and he gave 10 of them a huge sum of money to put to work, to, to invest, and to use. And so he went off, he was anointed the king, and, uh, you know, inherited a kingdom, and then came back to see how his servants did. And one came forward and said, hey, you're, you're one mina, I've turned it into ten. I said, well done, come rule ten cities. You've been faithful with this, you can be faithful with more. And another one came forward and said, hey, you're one mina, I've turned it into five. I've put it to use. And he said, great, here's five cities that you can rule. And then one came who said, yeah, I decided I'm going to bury it. I'm going to put it in a handkerchief, and um, here, is it, here it is back to you. And the nobleman, now king, was furious. He's like, that is not why I gave you the mina. That's not what you were supposed to do with it. You're supposed to put it to use. And this is perfectly in line with what Peter's talking about here of preparing for the end, preparing for the return of Jesus. When the chief shepherd appears, he's going to be ready to grant reward. That doesn't mean earning our salvation. That is perfectly by grace. He invites us by faith to, to come in, receive forgiveness. But there is a final judgment, a final reward for the service, for there are gifts that each and every one of us have, and we're supposed to be putting them to use, finding ways, avenues to bless others with that as we prepare for that destination. And so Peter lists, um, well, lists, he, he gives these two categories of, of these gifts. So the first is if anyone speaks, do so as if you're speaking a word from God. Uh, 
when operating in the gifting of whether it is preaching, which is probably the, the smallest minority of people in this congregation are going to be preaching or teaching, but it includes things of encouraging, even prophesying um, or leading, that we would only speak what God would have us speak, that we would get our agenda, we'd get our word from him, and that we would treat that ministry with reverence and holy dependence. But then he goes on to say, if anyone serves, do so as from the strength that God supplies, whether it's serving food, caring for the grounds, charitable acts, caregiving, building, cooking, giving, tech and media, all these things, um, that we would, it would all be done not by our own strength. It all, these things also must be done, be treated with reverence and holy dependence. And I just wanted to read a, a quote from a commentator named Edmund Clowney, who puts it very well. He says, Christians may be more tempted to undertake this practical service that we're talking about in their own strength. They may agree that the ministry of the word, well, that needs special grace. But waiting on tables, collecting money, or caring for the sick is just a matter of rolling up one's sleeves and getting the job done. Not so. If God is to be glorified by ministry in his name, it must be ministry performed in his strength. And Peter finishes it by saying, so that in everything God will be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power into the ages of the ages. I like that verbiage better than forever and ever because it reminds us that we're in a, a present age that won't last, that, that will ultimately come to an end. Um, but there's hope in final judgment. We don't live in a meaningless world where people get taken advantage of and, and die terrible deaths, and well, that was, that's too bad, but at least they're dead now, and that's the end of it. Or that we'll come to the end of human history and go, well, it came and went, and now empty space. We believe in a deeper meaning. Um, because of how God's revealed it, because of what he has in store for creation, that he's brought humanity about for a purpose, and he intends to fulfill that purpose. And what a gift it is that we get to be a part of it, that we get to start to implement that future age into our present age, where we're at right now, into, that we get to bring a taste of that heavenly reign, of that new creation, wherever we go, by partnering with, with God through our prayers, by having a committed love for one another, which is the true mark of our new humanity, by being hospitable toward one another, by serving one another with our gifts. So I provided a few reflection questions for you in your handout. As we just take some time to respond, to, to sing another song or two, and so let me just read those for you as we think about what we just heard. How do I respond when I feel attacked for my faith? Or when I think Christians are being attacked in general? Do I give in? Do I get angry? Or do I graciously endure? And how could I better arm myself with, the, with Christ's attitude and mindset? 
So maybe that's something you want to think about. If that one, if you're like, yeah, I feel okay there, then, then move on to, the, to that next question. What part of Peter's picture of sensible and sober action do I need to work on? Is it the area of prayer, of committed love for the church? Is that really a part of your heart? Hospitality, using my God-given gifts for the benefit of others? Or is it relying on God, his strength, to operate in my gifts? The next question is, how am I going to take my preparation for the Christian life more seriously? Are there things I need to stop doing? Are there things I need to start doing? And finally, how will I use my gifts to serve others? How will I ensure that I'm relying on God's strength when I do that? So let me close this out in prayer and, and take some time for reflection. I believe there'll be prayer teams on both sides. You can start to head there now if you're on the prayer team. Um, if you came in today with a need and you need prayer, please, please go to them. If, if something in this message has resonated with you and you want to recommit, you want to work on one of these areas, why not start with getting some prayer um, to begin afresh in that? So Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that you've placed before us that we get to look forward to new creation. We get to look forward to the return of our king to bring about his good, just reign. Not this weird caricature of final judgment that, that seems unfair, but that, as it says here, that we serve a God who judges impartially and justly. We thank you for that. We take refuge in the Son. We praise you for the forgiveness that you've, you've brought into our lives, into our hearts. May it sink deep into us and continue to transform us, to motivate us because of that forgiveness, because of your kindness. Motivate us to not succumb to pressure, to not give in to temptation, but instead to be actively seeking to do good, to be looking for what can I do to bring glory to God? What can I do to partner with God in bringing about his goodness, his righteousness into this fallen and broken age that we live in? 